0: and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. Every few weeks we share discussions about the craft and importance of journalism in Australia and around the world, often recorded at our events. Today's podcast is all about new voices in Australian journalism. What does it take to break into a media career in Australia in 2019? How important is it that our media includes voices from a range of backgrounds and perspectives? You're going to hear from a panel of talented young journalists about opportunities and pathways into the industry. This talk was recorded at the State Library of New South Wales on the 11th of April 2019 as part of our regular Walkley Talk series there.
1: Rather than me doing a boring introduction of all of our panelists, I thought it'd be better if they introduced themselves and perhaps started by telling us how it is that you actually got your foot in the door, because I think often that's the biggest hurdle is kind of that first one of cracking into the industry. Noor, do you want to start?
2: Hi, my name is Noel Hader. I just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today. I'm a state political reporter with the ABC. I've been in that position for a year, but with the ABC for two years. Prior to that, I was a producer at Sky News for two years and prior to that, I was a student at UTS and I studied journalism there. I guess I spent a lot of my three years at university also interning and I worked at various places which helped me realise I guess where in the industry I wanted to be so that certainly wasn't magazines for example so I did an internship at Grazia and Sunday Style and I realised that was not for me I also spent a lot of time working and volunteering at 2SER radio and that was an opportunity where I was able to get myself on air and practice editing and producing my own radio news stories for 2SER online and and their radio programs. That's sort of brief, I guess, condensed version of what I've done over the past few years and how I got to where I am now.
3: Hello, my name is Samara Gardner. I'm currently a journalist with WIN News Illawarra. Wynn in Wollongong is actually where I started my career as an intern. I got a three-week internship and then I just refused to leave. So with Wynne I've worked out in Wagga and then in Orange and then I've been back in Wollongong for the past 18 months where I cover police, court and health.
4: My name's Lydia. I only just graduated uni maybe a year and a half ago, so I'm very new to the workforce. I started off interning at lots of places throughout my degree. I think I, like Nor, tried magazines, found out they weren't for me as well. I interned at Mama Mia. I interned with the ABC. I also wrote and pieces for our student newspaper at Sydney Uni, on Swar, which some of you guys might know. And then I fortunately was the recipient of the Jacoby Walkley Scholarship, which gave me this fantastic opportunity to intern at nine. I was kind of all over the place interning there. I was offered a social media and digital producing role with 60 Minutes, and I was there for about six or seven months. And that was fantastic, filing online for one of the most watched current affairs shows in this country. And then I have just moved up into the Channel 9 newsroom. I am currently nocturnal and I work very early shifts in the morning writing the news for the Today Show.
1: Lydia is actually leaving here to go to bed before she gets up at 1am tomorrow yes. morning.
4: <laughs> so I'll uh, have to run after this. But
1: No, I'll start with you. You were a recipient of the Our Watch Fellowship a few years ago. Can you tell us about the impact that that had on your career?
4: Yeah, so
2: actually I'm this year's fellow, so I was awarded it at the end of last year. And the Our Watch Fellowship Program is a program designed to improve best practice reporting around violence against women and their children. And the idea is that the media obviously plays a very important role in shaping the language we use around gender violence and violence against women. And the Walkley Foundation, alongside Our Watch, set up this fellowship as an opportunity to really train journalists in terms of best practice reporting what should be said and what shouldn't be said, what's the theory behind the statistics we see in this nation in terms of the level of violence experienced by women in this country and also how does language influence how we understand that. And so the program has been an incredible opportunity for 13 journalists from across the sector. So there's various, you know, myself from the ABC, there are journalists from BuzzFeed, News Corp, Channel 9. So I think in order to improve and, and to create more nuanced journalism about violence against women, which is arguably the biggest story in this country at this stage, it really does take all players in this industry to improve their language in order to I guess create cultural change and to I guess halt the figures that we currently see in terms of how many women face sexual abuse and experience domestic violence within their homes. I'm still a fellow in that program and I'm still learning but I think the ultimate goal is to be more confident in the kind of journalism I produce and be more rigorous in the type of journalism I produce when it comes to violence against women.
1: It's early in the process of that scholarship, but what have you learned so far?
2: Well, so much. I think there are important things that we as an industry have to tackle you know everything from the subtleties around the the words we use that ultimately place blame on the victim and so these are things that we as journalists might not do deliberately but in the minds of our readers could go towards I guess ascribing some blame on the victim when we know that domestic violence is perpetrated by an individual for particular reasons. And ultimately, that is power. And we've learned a ton in terms of how, as journalists, we can equip survivors and victims of abuse to be empowered to tell their stories? What can we do to support them through their trauma while they tell those stories? And how can we protect ourselves from vicarious trauma? Ultimately, I think society at large benefits from having really nuanced stories and that means having survivors and having frontline experts talk to us about what's happening in homes across this country. Domestic violence is something that is, I feel, very passionately about addressing in this country. In 2015, my mum was murdered by my father. He's currently serving time in prison, 20 plus years. So I think having journalists who are equipped to tackle, I guess, the stereotypes around domestic violence, around gender roles is so important. But also empowering survivors to speak is also pivotal as well.
1: Samara, you have spent your career in regional newsrooms. Tell us about some of the benefits of starting your career in the bush.
3: I guess for me, it's been about being in the community that we report on. I feel that we work very closely alongside the region or the audiences, really. So that's been a huge privilege in my career in terms of working in the community for the community. And it's something that I really love about regional news.
1: I have been in the business for a decade now, and every job I've had is within about a five kilometre radius of where we are right now. What do you wish city-based journalists knew about reporting from rural areas?
3: I think that goes back to sort of my first answer. It's that we as journalists are a part of a community. I think that sometimes can get lost in Metro News, we might forget that we are working for the people and we are a part of their wider community. And so I think it's honing down on the issues that are affecting our audiences and the difference that we can make by telling those stories more closely, I think. You're yeah,
1: right. Lydia, you work in one of the country's biggest newsrooms in Channel 9. Do you see evidence that the dynamics in the newsroom are shifting in terms of diversity?
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, the media in Australia has had issues with diversity in the past of women underrepresented in top roles. And obviously, people of colour are underrepresented more generally in the media. But I think things are really changing. I mean, Nine historically is thought of back in the Kerry Packer days as being such a boys club. And I mean, you've even got to look at I work on the Today Show, as I said before, and now we have two female co-hosts. That would have never been a thing, not even five years ago. So I think things are changing. There's still such a long way to go, but I'm hopeful. And, like, you can... Especially, you see it at nine, I feel like the culture is shifting and it's a really great place to work.
1: And we've touched on this a little bit now, but the industry is so overwhelmingly white and male, and I realise I say that as a very white man, extremely white. (laughs) Nor... How important is it that the media includes voices from diverse backgrounds?
2: Very important. I'm privileged enough to be working at the ABC where it's making a deliberate effort to improve its cultural diversity amongst journalists and content makers across the board. But that is something we're still a long way from being, I guess, an accurate reflection of our broader community. I, I think we've made huge progress as an industry over the last, you know, 10 years. Imagine seeing Waleed Ali interviewed the Prime Minister of the country on a 7 o'clock news program 10 years ago. That absolutely would not have ever happened. And I think with diversity, whether it's gender diversity, racial or religious diversity within our ranks, and people with a disability, and the more diversity you have, the more accurately you can cover stories. So it's almost essential that we do our best to encourage people to enter the industry and then support them to stay in a place that's predominantly been white for decades.
1: Yeah, and it seems to me, uh, so often the pathway into journalism seems to be private school into elite university, often into a cadetship and then into a, a full-time paying job. And I want to touch on internships in particular and working for free. I think everyone on the, on the panel has worked for free. Is that right? Yeah, um, Samaro. Is it a good idea to work for free do you think?
3: That's definitely how I got my foot in the door and I think you know it's difficult. I was working three jobs and at uni and then also doing an internship on top and it's really tough but I think it really um, shows you the passion and the drive that you need to have for this career and I think that's really set me up in terms of when I did get my foot in the door and how hard I've sort of work to maintain it and keep going and keep growing. And so I definitely think that while it's tough, there's value in starting out in the industry in that way.
1: Lydia, do you think that the fact that some people can work for free and others can't, do you think that might be a barrier for entry to work?
4: Absolutely. I'm very fortunate that I come from quite a privileged background. My parents were able to support me throughout my university degree and I realised how hard it would be for people who don't have that privilege I mean I still worked while I was at university as well in hospitality jobs and that kind of thing while I was interning but I think if you didn't have that same family support behind you it would be so tough that's why it is so fantastic there are these paid opportunities that the Walkley Foundation offers the Jacoby Walkley scholarship for one they gave you some kind of financial reimbursement while you were doing a three-month stint which was full-time, so you couldn't do any extra weekend work or hospitality, working nine to five, five days a week. So having a little bit of cash in your pocket while getting on-the-ground media experience, that was fantastic. And I wouldn't be (laughs) in my role without that scholarship. So,
1: Tell me about the scholarship. How did it work?
4: So, you know, you go through the application process, you interview in front of a panel, which in itself is a great experience, meeting journalists who are absolutely at the top of their game. And then... From there, I did two months with Channel 9 and one month with the Walkley Foundation. So while I was at Channel 9, I kind of rotated around, did a few weeks with 60 Minutes, then at A Current Affair, the Today Show and in the newsroom. So you kind of get a taste for short form, long form, journalism. I think they also, now they've changed it a little bit and now you go and work for Nine Digital as well. So you kind of get that sense of, you know, filing for online as well. Through the scholarships, you kind of get a bit of a taster for all of the, all of the parts. It's a fantastic opportunity.
1: We talk a lot about diversity, and it's a, a massive conversation in the industry right now. I think, in, particularly in recent weeks since um, Christchurch, and we talk about all these different forms of diversity. We talk about gender diversity, racial diversity. Nor do you think we talk about class enough?
2: I don't think we do, but I don't think we do as a country. There is, I think, a narrative in this country. That that sort of skews away from acknowledging that there are class, I guess, that, that class plays out within our communities, that we like to think of ourselves as a country where anyone who tries gets a fair go, but we don't acknowledge that within you know, various suburbs, within our communities, within Sydney alone, there are people who experience barriers because of their socioeconomic status, and that prevents people from entering the industry. So I wouldn't give a blanket yes or no answer, but I think as a nation, we don't necessarily talk about class very much, even though, you know, the nation was built on the concept of the battler. We don't acknowledge that there are many, many within our communities doing it tough and living, I guess, with very little. And as journalists, we need to, I guess, tap into those stories and challenge governments and those in
4: in positions of power to create a more equitable society. I think adding on to that as well we live in an age where you have to fund good journalism you have to be able to someone's got to pay for it at the end of the day and that's where this divide comes between people who can afford to buy a newspaper or have an online subscription and then there's those who can't and turn to YouTube commentators who can be very informed and on the other hand completely crazy so that's (laughs) it's not so much in Australia you do see it but over in the states you've got people completely turning away from the mainstream media and branding us fake news and all of that sort of thing and I think uh, it's, it's hard but you have to work to get those people back on side and I think the way that you do that is by telling their stories accurately and with empathy
1: Yeah, it's a tricky thing, I guess. So many of the newsrooms, as I said, are concentrated in such a small area. (laughs) Samara, are we doing enough to reach out to those people who aren't necessarily as connected to the news as the people in this room are?
3: I think it's something that we could do better. I think that we have to sort of capture that the way that people access the news is changing and growing to meet that. Obviously, you know, I work for a company and we still do the 6pm news each night for half an hour but I think it is a changing landscape and we have to, to learn to, to better represent our communities which is definitely something that we try and do within our own format but I guess it is a really changing landscape that we need to sort of better reach out to people.
1: This is I guess kind of the million dollar question and I'll open up to everyone on the panel how can you crack into this industry particularly if your pathway is not going to be the traditional pathway of going to university and getting a cadetship that pathway feels like it's increasingly out of reach for so many people what are some i guess non-traditional pathways to cracking into the industry
2: That's a hard question because I did, I guess, take that traditional pathway. I didn't go to private school or anything, but I went to a public school and I went to university. And at university, I did. I worked for free and I was lucky enough to finally have some of the work I produced, acknowledged, and I won awards for it. And that then finally got me through to a position where I was able to secure paid work I think there are upsides to the way that our industry is changing, which means people can be self published, there are more opportunities for opportunities for people to submit their work on online platforms and have their work reach various and and broad audiences through social media. I'd be reluctant to say that it's easy, it won't be easy, but there are I would always encourage people that if journalism, writing, documentary producing is something they aspire to do and they can't take those traditional path, then I think it's you put in the hard yards, you put in the time and that pays dividends.
1: Samara?
3: I sort of agree, I guess, in a sense that I also went down that path of went to university, got a degree, got an internship and entered that way. But I think if you have the passion for it and for the drive and if you just refuse to to give up on the path that you want to follow, then it does pay back and pay in the end and I know there was definitely times that I questioned sort of what was happening and where I was going but I think refusing to to give up on your end goal you can get there and you can find a way of doing it.
1: Can you tell me about some of those times where you were struggling I guess what was happening there?
3: I think being out in regional communities has always been my passion but often I would I'm constantly looking for my next challenge and so that's been I guess, pushed me to go to different communities. And I suppose when I'm ready to throw myself in the deep end again, that's probably when I've sort of questioned, where am I going to next? So I've been very fortunate that within the Wynn Network, there is such a broad, we are for regional Australia. So there's been so many opportunities within that.
1: And speaking of working in a regional newsroom, and I think this is something that is probably felt across the industry is that we're as journalists constantly being asked to do more with less, and I think that's a story that's been probably been happening for quite a while. Can you tell me, and Nora, I know you touched on this a little bit before as well, how much is going into your day? Like, how much are you asked to do each day in a kind of normal work day, I guess?
3: Obviously, we have the half-hour bulletin. There's about four to five reporters in each of our bureaus, and we're doing at least two 1 minute 30 stories a day, plus whatever sort of comes up. Sometimes that's, you know, three packages or sometimes it's one it sort of depends on the day so it's flat out but it's so versatile every day is different you know you might go to a farm store in the morning and then I could be in court in the afternoon like it's just I just love it and we get to see such a a cross-section of our community it's hard work but it's the most amazing job so
1: And Nor, we were talking before the panel, you were kind of explaining what a normal day looks like for you. Yeah, Yeah. could you touch on that?
2: As a cross-platform reporter with the ABC, you are expected for most stories to file for TV, radio and online. And that can be challenging if you are tied up doing other things like gathering the news. So it is hard, but it's a skill that you learn. It's not a skill that you're born with. And so on any given day, I might be trying to get a story up for our seven o'clock bulletin. You might be expected to also have that story written up For online and you'd also be filing for the hourly radio bulletins that go to air if the story is demanding enough or if it's a big story there are at times two reporters would be assigned to that one story which is I guess great because you get more opportunity to tell the story well and to put more time into the platform that you're working on but you're not always fortunate enough to have two people on the same story which just means getting really good at time management kind of knowing when to just let it go and know this is good enough, I have to file this, I can't be pedantic, I can't labour over what I'm writing or try and make my words sing, as they say. You sometimes just have to file it and just hope somebody else will save it for you if there's any major problem. But I think multi-platform journalism is, I guess... And we've been saying this for years now or at least since i've been at university the way of the future so it's important i think for all journalists to have those skills but it does put i guess pressure on journalists and it can cause risks in terms of accuracy as well so i think as an industry we have to sort of reassess how do we want to continue doing this when newsrooms are facing more and more i guess strain in terms of financial strain but It's when you lean on your producers.
4: We don't get as (laughs) many producers as you guys. The reporters at nine have the same obligation. They go out, they have to file, look lives for the daytime news, get up, do live crosses, as well as their 6pm package, as well as online sometimes. I mean, we're fortunate we've got a digital team as well, so if they don't get time, the story generally gets filed because all of the digital producers have access to their interviews and all of their stuff online, but yeah. It's it's a bit of a team effort and I think it does pay to learn as many skills as you can possibly learn while you're at university because you never know when you'll need to call upon them.
1: And you mentioned that you are about a year and a half out of university, did you say? Yes. Yeah. Do you still use the skills you learned at university? Do you lean on those?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. In terms of news writing, what you learn at university is your bread and butter for what you take into the workforce. I mean, there is a lot that you learn on the job. They don't teach you the systems. I mean, universities don't have access to the news gathering systems that a proper newsroom does. So that's kind of all on the job learning. But I did an hour and a half of legal training today. And I was sitting there thinking, I remember all of this from my media law class. (laughs) And yeah, I was actually surprised at how, (laughs) how quickly it kind of came back. So yeah, I think what you, even though sometimes the lectures feel like they drag on, stick with them because They are important and you do pull on that knowledge quite often.
1: What didn't you learn at university that you wish you did? I'm putting you on the spot there. How to do the
2: news? (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's very different. I think I did find my time at university invaluable, but I guess when you're out there and you've got the Prime Minister making a major announcement and you're expected to file across TV, radio and online or whatever it might be, you're never told how to handle that situation. You've got your phone out trying to record your audio. At the same time, you're trying to send out a tweet because your online brand is a big thing and breaking stories on social media is a big thing and at the same time you're trying to take a still photo for the online story and that sort of stuff you just never get to try when you're at university so you learn a lot just by doing and I think together having the theory you learn at university coupled with what you learn on the job ultimately I guess
4: yeah I agree I think when, while you're at university, you might do one subject in radio production or one subject in video production, but if you find your niche, definitely go out and get more experience in that area because you won't touch on it again at university and they'll have you writing essays in your final year, which honestly is the most redundant skill for journalism. <laughs> you never need to file like 4,000 words unless, <laughs> unless you're writing a feature or something. I have not written that much in years. Yeah, I get told 12 pars.
2: 12 parts. So 12 sentences. I'm like, wow, how do I distill this down to 12 sentences? <laughs>
1: yeah. Tell me about the pressure you feel when you're producing something for radio, online, TV. And you mentioned the pressure <laughs> to be accurate in you know, such a time-sensitive environment. That must be a lot.
2: Oh, it is. I started off at the ABC as a cadet the year before last, so in 2017. And I Going from a producing role where you sit at a desk and you can kind of make the demands, you never anticipate how much unforeseen things happen when you're out in the elements gathering a story. And so it, at times, sitting there and you're like, I need to, I, there is so much I need to do, it's debilitating. As a new journalist entering, I don't want to make it sound too grim, but it can be very, very stressful. But I would always encourage everyone to persist. There were times where, you know, I was seeing the time sort of tick towards the bulletin and I was like, I'm not going to make it. This is going to be too hard. I can't do it. But you can rely on your colleagues. And I think the industry is a place where everyone benefits if the bulletin looks good. So everyone wants to assist their colleagues, get that story up and do a good job at it. So I would encourage you to persevere. Newsrooms are a hard place. You want to do well. You want to be accurate. And that should always be at the forefront. But, you know, push through any of those pressures or doubts that you would have because they exist for everyone
1: and you develop your skills the
2: more you're sort of in the newsroom.
1: You touched on before building a brand. Is that something that you're conscious of?
2: Not as much as some others, I think. (laughs) I don't know, you tell me.
1: I've definitely worked with some journalists who are very conscious of building their brands at times. Look,
2: I think it's important as journalists you want to have your audience trust you and i think nowadays with social media you can cut the middleman out and develop a direct rapport with your audience and i mean i don't want to say brand in that kind of very commercial sense but you know what is your image i think it is important it's important and it builds trust between you and your audience if there is some sort of human that exists behind the television screen or that voice that they hear on the bulletin once every hour.
3: I think that goes back to the question before about are we doing enough to reach our audiences? I find that having that platform is a different way to connect with our communities. The people that we connect to on Twitter or Instagram aren't necessarily tuning in at 6pm, so it gives us an opportunity to get our stories out to a wider audience. That's sort of how I try and use it.
1: And Samari, you've talked a lot about having that very personal connection to your community. Can you just give me a sense of, I guess, how that plays out for you in your day-to-day role?
3: I think where we have the benefit of being in a smaller area. So in terms of your contacts and the stories and having your ear to the ground, it's a bit different, I suppose, than if you're in a bigger metro area. So that's how it plays out for us on a day-to-day way. And certainly you feel a personal connection. Obviously, you're trying to have to take a professional approach to it. But certainly you can see how the issues affect your peers and your community. And I really think that you can make real change by telling their stories.
1: There must be quite a lot of, I guess, two-way communication between you and your audience. Do you hear a lot from your audience about what they're enjoying about your coverage or not enjoying for that
3: matter? Yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, a lot. I guess, particularly in Wollongong, obviously I've worked at a few different win bureaus, but Wollongong being the flagship where win has, you know, the deepest, the roots, then absolutely you hear it both ways. But I think that's, Really valuable for us as storytellers to hear what the community, or their response really to these stories. If we've missed the mark, them holding us to account, or if we've done something well, then also hearing that feedback. I think that's really valuable and helps us grow and tell our stories.
1: Lydia, I don't want you to tip the bucket on your colleagues or anything like that, but and I might ask this of everyone on the panel this is a panel full of young people, and I still consider myself a young person, even though my team. Call me the world's youngest boomer Lydia, what do you think are some of the big differences between this generation of journalists that are coming up now I guess millennial journalists versus some of the older journalists in your newsroom
4: <laughs> I think the younger journalists obviously I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to disparage the older journalists but they're I guess and it's just being young and having you know your first experience of the industry they're more eager and for that reason they're often doing more of the chase shifts so up early out looking at all of the overnight crime the older journalists obviously because they are more experienced they get put on the the longer form stories which may, might require a little bit more flair cuz obviously they've been writing for longer But, you know, if there's big breaking news overseas, they'll send someone who's experienced, who might be well into their 50s, who have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to do live crosses to the Today Show, and and they'll do it, and they'll do it passionately. So I think the passion for news, just like I never get out on the road, I'm very desk-bound, but just observing, purely as an observer, the passion never leaves. So I feel like if you're passionate about your work you'll get there and you'll maintain a fantastic career in the media.
1: We've mentioned already that you will be going to bed as soon as this is over and then getting up at 1am to do the 1-9 till nine shift, which you've been doing for the last few months, I think you said.
4: Yeah.
1: Do you just accept that that is part of, I guess, paying your dues in terms of cracking into the business?
4: Absolutely, you've got to crawl before you walk. And everyone who you speak to at Channel Nine, my boss Simon Hobbs is the director of the news. He worked overnights for years. My old boss at 60 Minutes, Kirsty Thompson, she did overnights for years, both as producers. I think it is a necessity, and it's just kind of where you start. <laughs> and just being there is such a privilege as well. It's a great place to learn and if you do make mistakes at five o'clock in the morning not many people are watching the bulletin so it's okay
1: (laughs) I know some of the talking about generational divides you know some of the most important people in my career have been some of those older journalists who have acted as mentors for me nor do you have mentors in your career
2: yeah, I think I have a few. I keep in contact with my university, my undergrad coordinator, Jenna Price. So she works and writes for the Sydney Morning Herald within the New South Wales ABC Parliamentary Bureau. Both Sarah Garethy and Bridget Glanville have guided me over the last year and, and helped me figure out how best to sort of craft my political stories. I lean on a whole bunch of people and I think, yeah, most people would be keen to help if they see that you're committed to the craft
1: sure samara can you tell me about some journalists who you admire or you've learned from in your career
3: absolutely i I guess directly where i'm working we're very lucky to have very long-standing journalists still working at win i think my boss said to me today that was 220 years just within our like office of experience so definitely you know national news director stella laurie just within the Wynn Network, we have so many mentors. But then also through the Walkleys and the Young Walkley Award that I won last year, that's opened up mentorship opportunities for me and a connection with Hugh Rewindon, which is something that I would never have thought that I would be able to sort of tap into. So that's been an amazing experience and one that I'm so thankful for as well. So I think those having those mentors is so important.
1: And, and what have you learned from your mentors?
3: I think just a different way of doing news. Sometimes I feel like you can become so wrapped in how you do it and you become quite methodical. So just having those mentors cast a new light and just open your eyes to, oh, why don't you do it this way? It just makes you, I think, can just improve your journalism so much more.
1: Okay, unfortunately, that's all the time we've got. So would you please thank our panellists, Noor Hayder, Lydia Bilton and Samara Gardner.
0: to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com/subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events, and other opportunities. If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the two SER studios in Sydney, Australia.